0: Welcome to For the Love of Yoga. In this podcast series, we explore yoga in all of its deepest dimensions. May these words nourish you. Today, we've got a very special day. It's Durga Puja, or the end of Navaratri. And so in India, welcome Cal, welcome Austin. In India, usually on this day, everyone gets out their tools of the trade. So whatever they're using, whatever their instrument is, today is the day they take the tools out and clean it. So a tailor might take out the sewing device and clean that. Music- musicians clean their instrument. And all of this is done in devotion to Saraswati who is generally regarded as the goddess of learning and music and knowledge. And her name actually means she of the pooling waters or pooling speech. So it's a goddess of culture, but it's also a day for the goddess of skill and uh, purpose. So with that in mind, I thought we would talk about dharma, that is how to find your purpose in life. And I always get asked this question, like, what's my dharma? And I thought today we'd address it in full. We'll come at it from all sides. And it's a very reasonable question to ask after we've spent so much time talking about why we are here. You know, we discuss that we are emanations of one unitary field of consciousness. Or if we are these, if this transcendental consciousness expressing itself as an individual, we can say, sure, sure, well and goodness, I know why I'm here maybe, but what am I supposed to do now that I'm here? And that's a very legitimate question to ask. Now that I'm here, what do I do? And a lot of us get very confused and flustered as to how we should spend our time and what we should do with our lives and what vocation we should um, align ourselves with, etc., So, today I want to do three things. First, I'm going to give you an overview of this concept of Dharma. I'll explain to you what Dharma means and maybe sketch it out in the abstract. Then I will talk about the Bhagavad Gita, one of the greatest expositions of dharma in the yogic literature, and see what the yogic literature has for us in terms of finding our purpose. And then finally, I'll talk a little bit about Buddhism and the concept of dharma as the Buddha expounded on it, because that's slightly different. At the end of this discussion, though, what I hope to impart to you is your dharma does not have to be monetized. It does not have to be your career. Secondly, your dharma or your purpose can change from moment to moment, but the overarching purpose will be the same. And finally, if you are interested in spiritual practice, one of the best ways to engage in your spiritual practice is to pursue your dharma. That is your purpose, that is your vocation. But one of the best ways To find your vocation is through spiritual practice. So here's a little bit of a circular argument, or maybe you could call it a positive feedback loop. By practicing spirituality, you are empowered in your Dharma. But through practicing or doing your Dharma, your spirituality deepens. They cannot, one cannot be found without the other. So with that in mind, that's our roadmap. Let's start just very simply with this concept of Dharma. Welcome. So what is Dharma? This Sanskrit word Dharma translates to... One of the best ways to translate it, Um, most literal ways might be law, but that might not be the best way to translate it. Law, but not in the sense of rules that you have to follow or the cop will show up and knock at your door and take you away. Not quite in that sense, but law as in duty or Um, I heard it once described, ethics is resolving to stick to a code of conduct that is enforced internally, not externally. So you can imagine it as a kind of deep core intuition as to what is right and what ought to be done or what is virtuous to do. So concepts of virtue, duty, honor, and dharma are all intertwined. Dharma has its opposite, which is adharma. So just like, you know, maybe a relevant example for our time, symptomatic, asymptomatic. In an English word, if you add an a as a prefix, it is the opposite of the word without the a. So symptomatic to have symptoms, asymptomatic to be without symptoms. Dharma has its opposite as adharma. So when you are doing something that is aligned with your core value as a person, you are practicing Dharma, but if you do something that jeopardizes your perhaps morals or ethics or intuitions or virtue, that's a dharma, the opposite of Dharma. While you have a personal Dharma, there is also an overarching Dharma for the universe or for creation. Here we really need to back up and clarify a bit. Um, you can think of it this way although this is not quite true, but you can think of it this way. Life has a sort of purpose. Now, if we reduced it to evolution, that's fine, and we know that evolution is a random process of natural selection and variation, but in this randomness of evolution, zooming out, you might see a kind of trend or progression, a kind of teleology or purpose in evolution. It seems that life is moving towards more and more complex beings that are capable of self-reflexive thought or consciousness, if you will. So it seems like life has a purpose to evolve. Culture supports life and culture um, values the things that support and perpetuate life, not just in the survival sense, but in what it means to thrive as a living human being. So there's that sense, the evolutionary sense. But in a more, or I should say, less reductionist or scientific sense of the word, you can think of dharma as a universal concept as the natural impulse of the universe to experience itself as a manifest universe. This might feel like it's happening in time that things are unfolding towards this great goal of a self-conscious universe. But this also is not strictly true, because to say that there is some linear progression starting here and ending there implies time. And as we've discussed together countless times, pardon the pun before, um, there cannot be such a concept in the here and now. And so the idea of a progression um, is ultimately illusory. Keep that in mind. But for the purposes of our talk today, we will stay within the realm of time. And we will assume that the universe has a Dharma, has a purpose. Now, your practice of your own Dharma will cause the speediest or most harmonious outcome of the universal Dharma. So that's why your job to do what you love is not just for you. It's for the universe. It's the most selfish, selfless act, or the most selfless, selfish act, if you can imagine. So the stakes here are high. If you don't do your dharma, you are getting in the way of the universe's dharma. That is a dharma. If you do do your dharma, do do your dharma, you are part of this harmonious unfolding. So far? So good? So what is this dharma then? Now, maybe I can break this down in a simpler way. I could say the sunflower's dharma, the law of the sunflower, or the duty of the sunflower, is sunflowering. And what that means for the sunflower is... It expresses the qualities of a sunflower, whether that's, you know, the yellowness, the brightness, the expansiveness. It's a certain length and it likes to grow in certain climates. It gravitates towards certain soils and etc. That is the nature of the sunflower. So the nature of the sunflower is also the expression of the sunflower. Because it is a sunflower, it's busy sunflowering. Now, the sunflower doesn't try to be the lily or the daffodil. The daffodil is daffodilling and has no interest in sunflowering. And the sunflower is sunflowering and has no interest in mooning because <laughs> the moon is doing that. So all of these beings, the wind, the moon, the sun, the sunflower, they each of them have their dharma. And they do just that. So you can imagine that dharma is incredibly specialized. Sunflowers have dharma, but each individual sunflower also has its own sunflower dharma, if you will. So if we had a field of sunflowers, one of them might be named Sunny. Sunny's dharma is to sunflower the way Sunny knows how to sunflower. Or rather, I should say, the way that Sunny is naturally inclined to sunflower. For most of the universe, whether that's the celestial beings like gods, goddesses, moons, or simple, natural, profound things like flowers and rocks, this dharma is not a problem. They do not need to attend a dharma talk to figure out dharma. It's natural, it's spontaneous, it's what they do, and they don't pretend to be anything they're not. Talking about dharma becomes important. When we're dealing with human beings, because we are particularly susceptible to abandoning our dharma, which is what we love, which is what we're called to do for a variety of reasons. And a lot of that has to do with not having the courage or the insight to pursue the dharma. So the problem I offer to you today, or the problem that most of us are faced with, is either we know what we want to do, but we don't have the courage to do it. Oh, we won't make money. What will people think? I got to do this instead, etc. So we know what we want to do, but we don't have the courage to do it. Or we have lots of courage. We're ready. We're enthusiastic. Eh, We don't know what to do. So those are the two places we can find ourselves. Unfortunately, sometimes we find ourselves in both situations where we don't have the courage and neither do we have the insight. So my general outline today is if you have a spiritual practice like meditation, yoga, tai chi, whatever it is, it will connect you to a place inside of yourself where from the fullness of your own being, you will feel empowered to courageously pursue your dharma, but you will also receive insight as to what that dharma is for you. So it's not uncommon. The moment somebody starts to meditate, they suddenly realize, oh, I was never meant to be a stockbroker, actually. You know, I came to meditation class because Wall Street was so stressful and my wife told me to check out this class. So I went. Now I love it. And so I go and do my stocks. Eight days a week, you know, that's how stockbrokers are. But I go to this one, you know, long-haired dude every Friday evening and I do some meditation, it makes me feel good. After about a month of doing it, I realize, wow, I'm a stockbroker not because I wanted to be. Not because as a seven-year-old, I always wanted to be in the financial world. No, it's because I went to Harvard and I got pressured by the people around me who were excellent sheep, as some people would call, You know, and, and just told that this is what you do when you graduate Harvard. You go and you make a bunch of money. And that's why I did it. But now that I'm doing it, I'm realizing it's not really fulfilling me. Ah, oh, but I'm scared. I mean, you know, my, my wife might leave me if I stop stockbrokering, you know. Um, I pay my mortgage. How am I gonna pay off the Ferrari? No, 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 I gotta keep stockbrokering. And of course, I, I'm stuck, I'm chained to my stockbroker job that I don't love, that I know I don't love, because there are things keeping me there. And what's keeping me there? My attachment to that Ferrari. To a certain way that life is, a familiarity. So I might recognize in I might get the insight that I'm living in a prison. I do a job I hate. I clock in and clock out to something that I only sort of like. It's not really what I'm about. Um, But it's a familiar prison, comfortable prison. So I'm going to stay. I continue to meditate, and suddenly. After about two months maybe of regularly meditating, I realized, wait, it's not stock brokering. It's actually jazz trumpet. It comes back to me. One day I'm sitting and I have a memory of being seven years old and I'm blowing the trumpet and listening to Miles Davis. And that's what really inspired me as a kid. As you meditate, it comes back. That urge, that initial calling starts to reassert itself. So as the stockbroker, you know, all the cocaine hookers and stuff, whatever, not to, you know, uh, if any stockbrokers in the room, forgive me. I'm doing my Wolf of Wall Street stereotype here. But, you know, after all the numbing from the cocaine and the hookers and all that stuff, um, I might have lost touch with that small boy inside. But as I meditate, suddenly the voice of that small boy comes back. The bird, the songbird starts to sing again. Now I'm in a particularly acute pain because i know stock brokering isn't a thing worse i know what is the thing jazz trumpet so i know that that's what i want to do and that's going to fulfill me but god forbid i quit stock brokering to do that because how am i going to pay the bills you know um that then that the pain becomes a little bit more acute so i continue to meditate and as i continue to meditate I touch upon the fullness of my being and I realize, oh, I didn't actually need the Ferrari. Um, That's not really what makes me happy. You know, if my marriage disintegrates, that would suck, there would be grief, but my meditation practice has empowered me to deal with that loss. And I'm realizing that I'm not all these things that I've identified myself with. Ah, now the attachments are starting to loosen. Then maybe the courage to quit JP Morgan Chase or whatever it is, hedge fund or whatever it is, quit that and go and start a band, play trumpet. Then the courage comes and the person might go and do their dharma. Now, here's the interesting thing, right? Go and find that person. In 10 years, they might not be playing jazz trumpet. They might actually be teaching um, some kind of educational course to children about some trumpet-related thing. They might be doing music education in Zimbabwe or something, you know? Um, So it's not that the person knew what their dharma was. They felt the call of their dharma, which at that time was to play jazz trumpet. That, of course, led them to meeting a drummer who, you know, introduced them to this charity organization that eventually got them to Zimbabwe. And now they're doing that, and that's what fulfills them. So remember, you don't need to know what your purpose is as a title. So you don't need to figure out what your job description is. I am Nish, yoga teacher. Yes, and I will tell you a little bit about my own journey to my dharma in the end of this class. But as far as possible, I like to leave the drunken monkey Nish out of these talks, you know, lest he ruin them. But, um, you know, this. you can imagine now the story that I've given you, there are two things that were missing from this person's life. One was insight And the other was courage. As long as those two things were not present in this man, he was subject to the whims of his culture. The voice of his mother in his head was what was leading him, not his own child's voice. And as he continued down the road of Adharma, which is that which does not fulfill him, he got sadder and sadder and sadder. And in this sense, even dharma has a, a duty, has a purpose, because through adharma, we get to a point of such acute meaninglessness and suffering that we eventually look for spiritual solutions to those problems. So a lot of people come to spirituality because they're miserable lawyers and bankers and doctors, and some of them are miserable musicians who should have been bankers and lawyers and doctors, you know? So the world is full of people who did something, and it's not just those, like, professionals, it's also, like, artists. People who think, um, for whatever reason, that they should be artists, but that's not their dharma. They're doing it to appear a certain way, or they're being led there by cultural forces, whatever. So any voice that is not your own, getting you to do something that you yourself aren't called to do is adharma. And this harms the harmonious unfolding of the universe. So let's now turn to the Bhagavad Gita a little bit. So that's enough to be said to kind of give you a feel or a flavor of this dharma business. Let's go to the Bhagavad Gita. So it just so happens that the universe sometimes goes astray. So there are periods of time when people are particularly susceptible to not doing their dharma, not doing their duty. And in those times in the yogic mythology, usually an avatar, an avatara comes down to earth to realign people with what's right and what they should be doing. One such avatar was Jesus. So Jesus comes down to uh, Judaic people who at this time are dominated by the Pharisees, who are just making a dogma and an institution out of religion that has sucked the spirituality out of that practice. The marrow of that beautiful Jewish mystic faith was turned into a tool for oppressing the people. So this is a time of adharma. Jesus shows up and he reminds people about their dharma. He takes people and gives them hope and inspires them and gives them the courage and the insight to pursue their dharma. So there are beings like that, the Buddha, Jesus, there are many beings who come as uh, prophets, the, the avatar literally that the TV show, you know, they come when they are needed, when times are a bit rough. So this myth, you know, um, takes its place in the Bhagavad Gita in the form of Krishna. So Krishna is the world teacher. Krishna comes and uh, he's disguised as just this prince, a handsome prince who's friends with our hero Arjuna. And his children, they play games together. You know, they are friends and Arjuna doesn't know that Krishna is God. And, you know, Krishna knows that Arjuna... He's mighty warrior, and Arjuna is actually the son of a god, but that's beside the point. And, you know, Krishna is all-knowing. Arjuna, though, just thinks it's his boyhood friend. So the Bhagavad Gita takes place one day when they're all going to war. Arjuna is a warrior. That's his dharma. Oh, and I should back up and say one thing about Arjuna. In the Mahabharata, which is this grand epic in which the Bhagavad Gita takes place, um, you get these characters, you know, these five brothers, the Pandava brothers. The eldest is Yudhishthira, and the third from the eldest is Arjuna. And they all have their various characteristics, you know. One thing about Arjuna is that he's particularly interested in um, martial arts. He really loves archery. Now, of course, this is a metaphor. Arjuna represents the third chakra. And the third chakra is all about goal setting, ambition, and will. Um, Yudhishthira is the throat. And he's all about law and order. Bhishma is the heart. So all the brothers are a chakra. Anyway, Arjuna, as the third chakra, is particularly interested in archery. So in the Mahabharata, there's actually a little line there that says, after everyone would go home after training with this master archer, Arjuna would stay he wouldn't go home. He would stick around and practice all night. So obviously this is something he loved. He enjoyed doing it. Now, naturally, when you enjoy doing something and you give yourself fully to that craft, you're going to get pretty good at it. And you're going to become famous from doing it. And Arjuna became in his time a famous warrior. The most skilled archer of all the land. And there are so many stories of his exploits. What a a masculine guy, you know, like Fierce, and you can imagine the rippling muscles and all that whole thing. Um, So this hero shows up uh, at the field of battle, and this is his thing. This is what he's trained his whole life to do. This is his passion. This is his dharma. But he shows up on the field of battle. He looks at the opposing enemy, and for the first time in his life, he feels unsure about himself. He starts to feel insecure about his dharma. He starts to lose his way a little bit. And he looks around and he says, oh my God, I can't go to war. My brothers and uncles and teachers are on the opposing side. I can't fight them. And oh my God, there are too many of them. We're never going to win this war. This is hopeless. How can I lead all all these men to their death? And he starts to come up with all these reasons for why he shouldn't be doing his dharma. And if you read the Bhagavad Gita and a lot of people pick it up and they start reading, in chapter one, they almost feel called out because Arjuna echoes to us our own voice or rather I should say echoes to us the predicament of the voices in our head leading us astray. So when all of us are, you know, everybody's parents, you know, they tried their best. They tried their best. Um, But they weren't perfect and they did the best they could, but in parenting, they might have left certain complexes and that voice might be there. It's not your literal mother or father, but it's a voice that says you have to do this or do that. You picked up certain voices from the media, whatever it is, at any given time, there are voices in your head confusing you. This is what was happening to Arjuna. He could no longer get in touch with his dharma. He knew, no longer knew what that was. In a state of confusion, in a state of mental agitation, he lost his insight, but he also lost his courage. He threw down his bow and slumped. And that's what it says in the Gita. He started to cry, you know, he slumped and this manly man with the rippling muscles, famed throughout India for his archery prowess, is weeping like a baby. You know, he's, he's just done for. And that's kind of the predicament Uh, No, no. Arjuna had many reasons. And someone asked me, why did Arjuna, like, was he insane? And you could say, yes, this is a kind of insanity when you have all these voices in your head and you're listening to them and they're confusing you and you're not listening to your own voice. It's a kind of insanity, I would say. Now, Arjuna comes up with these reasons that sound legit. That's the interesting thing. All of his excuses for not doing his dharma seem quite reasonable. You know, like, Really? To fight people that he used to love? His brothers, his uncles, his teachers, his friends? That doesn't sound like something you should do. To continue his dharma might endanger his whole army in a hopeless war he cannot win? That's not reasonable to do. Perhaps he should surrender and go to the forest and lead an ascetic life. That might be more noble. You know, so Arjuna has all these um, excuses, and at face value, they seem like pretty good excuses here let's pause. I suspect that some of you know what your Dharma is, know what your purpose is, and what your calling is, but don't really want to do it. Maybe because of a lack of courage, but look at why you're choosing not to do it. Some of you are rationalizing. You're thinking, oh, I'll do it later when I have financial security. or oh, I'll do it when I have this in my life. Or actually, this can only be done when, you know. So there are conditions that you set. And notice on surface value, they seem like very uh, legitimate concerns, right? So that's the tricky thing. They seem quite reasonable. Anyway, Arjuna slumps and cries and explains all of this, his best friend Krishna who at the war is his charioteer just sits and listens he doesn't contradict Arjuna, he doesn't try to debate Arjuna, he just sits and listens and smiles his mysterious Krishna smile and just lets Arjuna rant and rant and rant until he's out of steam and he finally sinks down and he goes, Krishna, my good friend what do I do? You know. and Krishna goes, alright here's your problem you know what your dharma is, go and do it. And he's like, but, but, but and, and Krishna, for the rest of the Bhagavad Gita, explains to him this concept of dharma. So of course, we, you know, we don't have time to really get into each of the arguments that Krishna makes. Actually, Caroline, it's a really good teacher training manual because Krishna, as a yoga teacher, it's very beautiful to see how he has all these different approaches to deal with a particularly difficult student. And the difficult students are the advanced ones. It's because Arjuna is so intelligent and so capable that he can be so ignorant. (laughs) He's particularly skilled at self-delusion. Precisely, the first Nike commercial, Krishna to Arjuna. Just do it. (laughs) So, uh, you know, they're having this debate. So what does Krishna do? The first thing Krishna does is explain to Arjuna... Um, I'm getting a question here. Is the Bhagavad Gita as it is the same? I don't really want to talk about Bhaktivedanta Nanda. I have a lot of uh, qualms with that movement and that organization. And here's what I would recommend. Have a lot of different translations of the Bhagavad Gita. See the Bhagavad Gita from Vivekananda's point of view, from Yogananda's point of view, from Graham M. Schweig's point of view. Um, and I love the Schweig translation. And today at the end we'll talk a little bit, I'll give you some of my favorite translations. But if it, and in, any, in any case, don't take anybody's word for it. And that's kind of the qualm I have with some of the Bhakti Vedantananda movement guys and girls, because they're very kind of like, our way is the only way, which seems very not yogic. Because maybe bhakti works for you, jnana for me. Maybe jnana works for you, raja is for me. You know, just trying not to be dogmatic about it. Um, and these are just stories, you know. Um, so there we go. We've got this whole debate happening. But I just want to tease this point out first. Arjuna, to get Krishna, sorry, Krishna to get Arjuna to do his dharma, starts to teach him yoga starts to educate him in a spiritual way. He starts to give him spiritual training. And Arjuna, you know, needs this training. He's at his lowest point. He's at the nadir of his career as a, as a, as a knight or as a soldier. And it is at this moment in despair that he turns to Krishna for spiritual solutions to his problems and Krishna starts to instruct him in meditation. So there in the middle of the battlefield, while the battle, you know, it's about to go on, um, and some people say while it's happening, there is Krishna instructing Arjuna and there is Arjuna learning his asana, his pranayama, his, you know, his all that stuff. He's learning it and that's got nothing to do with fighting the war. But to Krishna, it has everything to do with fighting the war. Because what ends up happening is Krishna manages to show Arjuna, not just through argument. Of course, there is some of that. Bhagavad Gita is full of a dialectic. Not just through argument, but through actual practice and firsthand experience, Arjuna is starting to learn yoga. And Krishna's definition of yoga is this. Yoga is skill in action. Yoga is evenness of mind. They are wise who see me in all things and all things in me. So Krishna is teaching Arjuna how to see divinity in the world, how to remain equanimous, equanimity, how to have equanimity in both losses and defeats. For those of you who study Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and Epictetus, you know, the um, Stoics, the Roman Stoics, you will see a parallel here between what Krishna is talking about and what the Stoics are talking about. This beautiful equanimity, balance between duality, etc., etc. Once Arjuna learns this yoga, his vision is cleared. He no longer feels pulled this way and that by all these doubts. Instead, he finds in himself a courage and a spiritual fortitude to connect to his own inner voice, and thereby he gets the insight that, oh, what I should do is fight this war. I'm not supposed to worry about the outcomes. The outcomes will take care of themselves. All I have to do in this moment is to do my dharma. And in the next moment, I'll do my dharma. And in the moment after that, I'll do my dharma. But I only have to take it moment by moment. And Krishna teaches Arjuna how to do all of this as an act of devotion, as an act of service. And he says in verse 47, the most beautiful verse to me in the Bhagavad Gita, he says, let not your attachment be to action. Sorry, let not your attachment be to the fruits of action, nor let thy attachment be to inaction. Your right is to your work, not to the fruits of your work. Lay the fruits of your work up for me. Krishna speaking is God. Jesus says the exact same thing when he says, I can of my own self do nothing all of my works my father does through me and beautiful things like that. So similarly, ask yourself if you're really doing a job that you would do for no other reason than for its own sake. If you are getting something from your job and you're doing your job for that something, it is not your dharma. So that's the simplest way to put it. If you are doing your dharma, you might get enumerated for it. So you, money will probably come your way. People will give you validation and fame. But sometimes they won't. So you have to ask yourself, is there something that you will do and continue to do regardless of what happens? Meaning regardless of the fruits of that action. Some sour fruits, some sweet fruits. But are you more interested in the tree? So Krishna teaches Arjuna this. To lay up the fruits as an offering to the divine as an offering to your vocation. So we can kind of step back and put this in self-help terms. Um, failure is just an opportunity to learn. Thomas Edison's whole, I didn't fail, or was it Benjamin Franklin? I think it was Edison. I didn't fail, I just found 99 ways that didn't work. You know, stuff like that. So every time you fail, all the you know self-help authors say, ah, that is contributing to your success. Um, the failures are part of the dues that you're paying so to speak. Uh, There's a beautiful Zen proverb, every arrow that meets his mark, it's a result of a thousand misses. So you've got to put in the time making the misses. But if you think about it a certain way, each miss is an offering to that success. But even that success doesn't mean you stop shooting. It's not like an expert archer once she meets the bullseye, goes, I'm done. I'm throwing my bow down. I finished. I did it. No, it's the joy of archery that keeps her shooting. Whether or not she misses or gets it, that's kind of nice, but it's it's a side note. You'll see this with rock stars actually, it's very interesting. But rock stars, famous rock stars like Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, they have such long careers. And it's interesting because they make so much money, they have a million houses, they've done all the drugs in the world, some of them have even like you know, some drugs have gone extinct because they did all of them. So you can't buy Quaaludes off the market now because Keith Richards did all of them, you know? So they've done all of that and they had every kind of high they could have in the world, yet there's Mick Jagger, there's Keith Richards. He looks like a shriveled up prune. He's about like this small now, but he's still strutting. And there's Mick Jagger, age 70, whatever, going, can't get no... Satisfaction, you know, he couldn't. He couldn't get any satisfaction anywhere in the world, but there he is, you know. It's only rock and roll, but I like it. Yes, I do. You know, he's doing it for its own sake. That's his dharma. And look at what happened. Mick Jagger stuck to his dharma. Because he did it, he got the whole world. The world was not enough. He stayed with his dharma. And in doing it, he's made the lives of so many people around the world beautiful. So many couples made love for the first time to brown sugar or something. And every time the song comes on, it sanctifies their love. And so many children, so many teenagers found an escape from their bad neighborhoods through that music that they heard on the radio. They would stay up all night just to catch the Mick Jagger lyric, you know? So just think about all the beautiful works of service that have come into the world as a result of people doing their dharma. It's unlikely that Mick Jagger set out to do all that stuff. I don't know, I don't know him. You know, maybe we'll meet one day. Who knows? But I don't know him. And uh, maybe for all I know, he sat down, he planned it all out. He was like, okay, by this age, I would have served this many people. Um, This is exactly how I'm going to be helping them. I'm going to help that teenage girl get off for the first time. That's my role. You know, I don't think he thought about any of that. All he wanted to do, or rather I should say all he knew how to do at the time was to play music because everything else sucked. That was his escape. That was what turned him on. That was what kept him alive. And he did it. He did the hell out of it. Even when the cops were raiding his place because, you know, like there was the story of the Rolling Stones or the story of any successful musician or artist is usually one of ups and downs, usually one featuring many years of poverty and obscurity. And for some, their whole lives in poverty and obscurity. And yet it's still meaningful enough to them to do it. So that's kind of what Arjuna learned. He learned that, oh, I love this thing that I do. I love archery. And that's what I do. And one day he forgets that. He forgets that he's Arjuna the archer. Now remember, you can be on the path of your dharma and then lose that somewhere in the middle because of whatever concern. So Arjuna was on the path. He was doing what he loved and he forgot what he loved. This is also part of the movie, right? The musician who gets so caught up in the drugs and the glamour that she no longer hears the music anymore and all that she makes is commercial crap. And then one day, in the depths of her despair, she hears a lullaby that her mother used to sing to her when she was a child and her love for music is reawakened. She connects with that central child in her and then her music is revitalized. It's like that, it's like that. Arjuna is there, Krishna teaches him the yoga and then he's able to summon up the fortitude, the equanimity and also the insight to continue on his Dharma. So now let's turn to the Buddha a little bit. Um, So we'll make a quick pit stop at the Buddha. To the Buddha, the Dharma, that word does not actually imply your vocation or your purpose. To the Buddha, your purpose was to seek enlightenment now. So your Dharma was, in essence, spiritual practice. It was the be-all, and all So you dropped out of the world because the world was suffering. The world was confusing. You dropped out of the world and you went to a monastery. You put on orange robes and you practiced the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path, we actually call it the Dharma Chakra, meaning the wheel of Dharma. And there are eight spokes on the wheel. You know, right view and right speech and right action and all that stuff. Um, right, all the rights, you know, and you do all the right things and you turn the wheel, and then in this life, hopefully, if you do it right, if you give yourself to it fully, you will experience nirvana or you will attain nirvana. The Buddha was very careful to say, though, that nirvana was not the end, nirvana was the beginning. Once you attain nirvana, eh, I didn't really comment. He said, figure it out for yourself. Presumably what the Buddha meant was once you attained nirvana, then you go back to the world and finally you're able to do the thing that you're supposed to do. Short of nirvana, your work is always impure. It's always polluted by some kind of you know, worldly concern or maya, or as Buddha would say, samsara, the wheel of birth and death. But only the enlightened person could be a force for good in the world. Vivekananda, the great saint of India, also said, um, if you want a job done, ask a monk to do it. They will do it most effectively. Everyone else, you know, you can see all these humanitarian organizations, they're doing something good, but oh, the drama. You know, everybody wants to be the CEO and like all that stuff and Greenpeace is fighting and there's so much drama because people don't have the spiritual practice foundational in them to not react when someone says something they don't agree with you know, or to not seek an ego satisfaction out of charity. So without that spiritual foundation, you don't have the insight to know what your dharma is, nor do you have the courage to pursue it. So spiritual practice for the Buddha came first. So now that we've talked a little bit about the Gita, and we've talked a little bit about the Buddha, I want to offer you a little synthesis, as I see it in these two philosophies. And I want to offer you this. Each of you know instinctively what your purpose is. It isn't a job description. So it isn't, oh, I am a social worker because perhaps what you're supposed to do doesn't yet exist in the current economy. Often it doesn't. It's too specific. It's too hyper-specific, you know? I'm a yoga teacher, but not quite. You know, I, I do a little something different and what I do is is what I do and the way I do it is 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 you know you're not going to get anywhere else but i hope but uh you know there's that thing that you do and if you give yourself a title you're stifling it so if you try to define to yourself what your dharma is you're doomed you're doomed because you're presupposing the mind can speak the language of the heart it cannot the mind is a great executive it's a terrible boss right so the mind knows how to carry out the the process the production work but the heart that deep spiritual core is the one that ultimately designs that dharma for you. So right now, not so much a job description, but you know what it is that turns you on. So you know that when you do a certain thing, you feel the best. For some of you, it's painting. For some of you, it's dancing. For some of you, it's teaching yoga, maybe. But I want to take a step back also. What turns you on might not actually be a thing you you like offer I, I I feel like there's a better way to say this but you know yoga teacher painter dancer all these words imply you're doing something for somebody else right but it doesn't have to be that you might love something maybe you love Star Wars I don't know and, you know, your love of Star Wars compels you to consume hours of, like, Wikipedia articles about all the characters. And you watch the movies. This, this is not anecdotal. What are you talking about? I don't know anything about it. No, but you, like, watch the movies a million times, and you can't explain why. That's what you love to do. And everyone's like, go paint. Go dance. Do something. you're like, no, I just want to sit and watch um, Luke Skywalker save Princess Leia for the fifth time today. You know, maybe that's what you want to do. That's what turns you on. And you know it's not escapism because there's a certain feeling you get when you're doing something you love versus when you're doing something to get away from something you don't love. You know the qualitative difference when you're smoking on the balcony so you can run away from something you hate versus when you're reading about something you love or, you know, watching a movie that you love. So I want to suggest that your dharma now is just what you love and that's just you know i don't want to say what you love because that sounds so loaded you know what do i love it's too loaded rather ask yourself what are you interested in right now you know what's sparking your curiosity what's inviting you to a uh, exploration um, situation so maybe you know i'll remember this was funny one time i was watching boston legal on tv It was really weird. It was a show about lawyers, you know? At one time in my life, I almost did that. I was already in the path, you know, to be a lawyer or whatever. As a good Indian boy in colonial Malaysia does, be a lawyer. But as I was watching Boston Legal, there was a case on TV, and it was about, um, like, a family whose school had um, Halloween and they depicted witches as these scary, hideous things. The family, though, were practicing Wiccans. So the mother and father were hippies and they were really upset that their daughter was being bullied at school because of these depiction of witches. So, you know, I'm watching the show about this case where these parents are suing the school or whatever. And I'm watching and I'm like, oh, Wicca, interesting. And it invited a little bit of curiosity on my part. So I went and looked a little bit at, at Wicca. You know, I was very young. I went and looked at Wicca, and then I got interested from from looking at Wicca, I got a little interested in the tarot, and then slowly, you know, I discovered some of the Western uh, ceremonial magical practices, like the Golden Dawn and Hermeticism and all that stuff, and I never really would have gone into that world of Western esoteric writing in the same way if I didn't have that little interest, that little kind of nudge to go and just Google the word Wicca. That's all I wanted to do that afternoon. Go and Google it. And then I Googled it and then led me to one other thing. And then, you know, you at a bookstore and you see a book. And for me, I remember looking at um, Robin Sharma's The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. I was very young, maybe eight or nine or something, I was walking and I saw the book and something about the title or maybe it was the image caught me. That, in that moment, that was my dharma to reach for the book, you know. So Dharma doesn't have to be, oh, I'm a yoga teacher. It can just be, oh, in that moment, I feel a pull towards this thing, and I'm going to go and do it. Okay, but this requires tremendous courage on your part. To indulge yourself, to go on these journeys of exploration, you must have the courage to see it as valuable. You must see every little insight that you have, not to say insight, but every little stirring of your heart. However slight, you must see it as sacred. So if you want to visit a certain cafe a certain day, you can't say oh but I got to get through this document first. I got to do this first. You know so there's there's a impulsiveness here. And recognize this contradicts a lot of the stuff I told you a few classes back about spiritual discipline. See, that only applies once you know the path and you have to stay on it. But while you're looking for the path, you have to be open to all things. If you say, oh, I'm going to be that, you've limited yourself to that and now you have tunnel vision. So you miss all of this. You're just here. So if you surrender all your preconceived notions about what your dharma should be, then it only becomes a matter of feeling your way into the next moment. So what do you want to do now? You know, once this philosophy class ends, what do you want to do? Not what do you have to do? Not like, oh, I have this homework, or I have to do this. But if you didn't, and Alan Watts has this thought experiment, if you didn't have to worry about money, what would you do? Like kind of experiment. So if you didn't have to do anything after this, what would you do? Now there you have a clue. So go and do that thing. And that thing will lead you to the next thing, and that will lead you to the next thing. And before you know it, you have a vocation. That's the first thing I'll offer. The second thing I want to offer is that your vocation does not have to be your career. So that's something that I realized recently. And I used to think, okay, this is kind of obvious. If you love something and you give yourself the license and the permission to pursue it with the fullness of your being, you will eventually sustain yourself through doing it. No matter how niche or obscure it is, if you love something, you will automatically become the best at it, or you'll become so good at it that you'll be able to leverage um, that for money and for security, you know? Jesus even says, find me first and these will be added onto you, you know? So don't worry about material wealth. That will come. So it's quite obvious that if you love something and give yourself permission to pursue it, you will uh, make money doing it. But there's a danger here because sometimes once you monetize that which you love, you can end up losing your dharma. And I only recently realized this. I was reading Austin Kleon's book. um, I think it's Keep Keep Going. You know, he's got these series of books, Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work, Keep Going, um, these three books, and I highly recommend it. I'll put it in the chat bar. But it's a very beautiful series of books about being on a creative journey and what it means to be an artist and all that. In Keep Going, Austin Cleon points out a cultural trend that he's speaking against. He says how often it is the case that someone loves to knit. And he is by day a um, stockbroker or whatever. He knits beautiful scarves, you know. And someone else, she is a lawyer, but she likes to bake. And one day their friend has a birthday. So the baker comes and of course she brings a cake that she baked. The knitter comes and of course he brings a shawl and they open their presents. And how often it is that the birthday girl opens the shawl and says, oh my God, this is such a beautiful shawl. You should sell these on Etsy, I'm sure they'll do well. Or the person eats the cake and goes, oh, this is a delicious cake, you should open a bakery. You know, it's like Austin Kleon says, the only way we know how to compliment each other now is to try to put a price tag on it. To say that this is monetizable, you should do it. You know, a few years ago, that was inspiring. But now it's a little soul sucking because it almost implies that your vocation must be your career, that the way you make your money must be doing what you love. And that might not necessarily be true. There might be ways for you to make money that have nothing to do with what you love, but what you love still has a central place in your life. So you spend most of your time doing what you love. It just so happens that that's not the way you pay the rent. You do something else for that, and that's fine. Here's the disclaimer, though. If you do something for money, just for the money, this will poison you um, to the core of your being. So you must start seeing things that you don't want to do akin to drinking bleach. You don't drink bleach because you know that it will kill you. Just think about it. When you look at bleach, every part of you says that's not for drinking, you know? You just know instinctively on a bodily level that that is not for drinking. But there are people in this world who will happily drink bleach the moment you offer them a million dollars to do it. You know? Everybody has a price, it seems. So be very, very careful. (laughs) Haha, Thai Those are delicious. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. (laughs) But uh, every time you look at a job that you detest, that you don't want to do, it's bleach to you. But... For whatever reason, you do it, maybe for some financial security or whatever, that will poison you in a way that's a little deeper than bleach. Because you will come home from that job completely drained. Your inspiration to do art or to do your vocation will be gone. And when you're sitting there at the end of a day of a job that you don't like, you'll be too pooped to do anything but sit, drink beer, and watch TV. You won't have the energy to meditate or do yoga. You won't have the energy to paint. So if you think you can have a career to support your art, but the career is something that's stifling, you hate it, then that will poison your art. So the money that you're making and the security that you're getting from that career um, does not enable you to have the freedom that you thought you would have. Because you no longer have the energy or the inspiration to do it. So there's a little disclaimer. Your vocation doesn't have to be a career, but if you have a vocation, then you will naturally find yourself secure. The final thing I want to offer is if you don't know what you're supposed to do in life or if you do know, but you don't yet have the courage to go and do it, my advice to you is not go and do it. That's not really what I would say. I wouldn't say, right now, quit your job, go into... No, nah, no, nah, because that will be give you, it will give you problems. Because you're not yet done with your attachments now. You still want the things that your job is allowing you to have. So you still want a certain level of financial security that's important to you. So instead, I would say, just develop yourself spiritually. So while you go out and, you know, engage in your drama, and do do our nonsense, you know, as we do, let's put aside a little time every day, you know, a little bit at first, maybe just five minutes, and slowly working up to an hour. It will happen naturally, but just putting aside a little time to do something for our spiritual selves, whether that's the yoga, asana, or that's meditation, or even just reading a spiritual book or whatever it is. Slowly, as your spiritual practice grows, you will notice a few things. One, you start to feel more courageous. You no longer depend on financial security to feel secure, because now your security doesn't come from having a certain sum in the bank account. It comes from a strong, grounded root chakra, which you develop through your asana. It comes from touching the fullness of your being that communicates to you, you don't need anything outside of yourself to be happy. So once you touch the bliss of meditation, that self-sustaining joy of peace and fulfillment that comes through spiritual practice, then it will be easier. Then you won't need to pull yourself away from a job you hate. It will just fall away from you. You will just one day decide, I am not scared to quit it will just fall away. Your addictions and your habits, smoking will fall away. Late nights at the club, you know, for reasons other than pure enjoyment, will fall away. All those patterns you did out of fear, as more love comes into your life, as more peace comes into your life, those will fall away. And as everything falls away, all that will remain is simplicity. You will simplify your life. In the words of, I don't know who quoted this, but someone said, acquire less and have more. I think it was Dr. Kabat-Zinn, the meditation specialist, said, acquire less, have more. You will soon realize you need less, you're satisfied with less. And then you're able to live in a one-room apartment in Manhattan teaching yoga, you know, because you don't need all the things you used to need that kept you from doing what you love. So in closing, If you practice spirituality earnestly, you will know your dharma. But not only will you know it, you will also have the courage to pursue it. And when you pursue it, your life will be enriched in ways that you could not even imagine. Um, It's honestly effortless. So now we'll close our class um, officially. We've come up now to the end of our time together. It's been about an hour. And to respect your time, let us close. I ask for maybe two minutes, though, as we close, just to chant a little um, mantra. So you're welcome to leave, of course, I don't want to keep you beyond the time, but, you know, today is a day for Saraswati, and she does preside over skill. So I'll chant a little mantra, and we'll do maybe call and response. Um, it's a very simple mantra. It's OM AIM HRIM SARASWATIYE NAMAHA, and I'll type it here. It's a hymn to Saraswati. There it is. Om i Hrim Saraswatiye Namaha. This is a hymn to the goddess of learning, skill, music, culture. If you want some money in your life, I'll give you this mantra. It's a very powerful mantra. I'm going to give it to you now because you know, you've been here and I, I trust you with it. I'm not going to intone this mantra, I'm just going to give it to you. It's there, it's potentized. Um, choose which one you want. The second one is for Lakshmi. And by using that mantra, you'll be able to bring grace, haha, grace, elegance, beauty, and uh, wealth, but abundance in all forms into your life. Um, but otherwise, stick to the Saraswati Namaha and we'll just chant a little bit together if you don't mind. Pull out the harmonium. Amen. Uh-huh. Thank you for a beautiful class. Namaste. Thank you, everyone. Uh, It was so good to see you all today. (laughs) RT, I'm not quite sure what RT is.
1: (laughs) It's TikTok for retweet. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) It means I agree with whatever was said.
0: (laughs) TikTok is its own language. It's TikTok for retweet. (laughs) You're so welcome, Nick. You're so, so welcome. And I've got a fellow yoga teacher in the room, so it feels extra special to talk about dharma. That's you, Caroline, in case you were wondering. (laughs)
1: I was curious. I was like, "Wait, it's, it's yeah. not quite yet, but getting there."
0: <laughs> uh, someone's in teacher training, I'm just like, "Yes." <laughs> like Eight billion people in the world. What we could use is more yoga teachers, <laughs> and less uh, power. I don't want to say less power yoga teachers. There, are, there are enough of those, but more, you know, of this caliber.
1: <laughs> I just want to plug this really awesome book that I really love. Yes. Please big magic it's written by elizabeth gilbert which is the lady who pray pray, love yeah she wrote like an artist's advice book um but it totally relates to especially the beginning of your conversation Nish, about the introduction of the concept of dharma her very first chapter uh like it's like it's a book about how to live creatively and be successful or whatever um But her very first chapter, she talks about the person in her life that she sees as the most creative person that she knows. And it's this suburban mom who is just like, she like has some nine to five and she has kids that she has to cook dinner, whatever. But she's passionate about ice skating. She's too tall and too old to ever be professional in ice skating. So it was never an option for her to actually be like successful as an ice skater. But every morning she wakes up at six o'clock before her nine to five goes to the rink and skates by herself. And Elizabeth Gilbert looks at that and she's like, that's what it's about.
0: Yes, precisely. Because there's this notion that you have to be, you know, if you're doing your Dharma, you're famous for it, or you have a lot of money for doing it, or you're doing it in a very public way. But it could be as simple as quietly by yourself in the rink in the morning before everybody else wakes up, you do it, you know? Yeah, I think that's a very healthy dharma because it keeps it fenced in and protected from all the ways it can be corrupted by money and fame. And then it stays true and pure. Because, you know, it's funny how the practice or the thing you love, even if you don't know anything about spirituality, is itself the same training you get in meditation which is to just be so absorbed in that thing, you know? And then it quiets your mind, it quiets your heart and all that. Thank you for sharing. Big magic. If you drop it in the chat, that's helpful. And I'll do some translations of the Gita here for you. Um, this is that book that I cited earlier, Austin Cleon's Keep Going, which is great. So the Gita translations, I really like. Um, this one, Swami Chinmayanda's commentary. I think Swami Chinmayanda does an excellent job. and That was my first Gita, actually. Swami Chinmayanda's Gita. Um, a more advanced Gita, definitely for someone... You know, it's good for beginners and people who are returning after a while. But I highly, highly recommend that you pick up a copy of Paramahansa Yogananda's God Speaks to Arjuna. God Speaks to Arjuna. I highly recommend that copy. It really unpacks some of the deep symbolism in the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita. So that's a great one. Ayengar um, has one. BKS Ayengar has the Gita. He calls it light on the Gita. Um, it's great. I highly recommend it. Um, not as familiar with that one. Here's a really good translation that I like though. Um, his name is Schweig. And Graham M. Schweig has a really nice translation. It has a very accurate Sanskrit to English translation. Um, this is a good one. Oh, Fuerstein. steam? I don't know why the umlaut came there, but that's a good one. Um, this is the author of The Deeper Dimensions of Yoga, one of my favorite books on um yoga from a secondary perspective. So it's not a primary source, secondary source, but he does a really good job of taking you through the very big world of yoga. So that's a good one. Um, Of course, there's the Iswaran one, you know, the Ekanath Iswaran. These are all my favorite Gitas. So there you are. Those are all my favorite Gitas. Um, For Mahabharatas, I, I actually recommend this one, Krishna Dharma's uh, Mahabharata. So this one is a super abridged Krishna. Sorry, not Krishna, Krishna, um, a super abridged Mahabharata. It's like this thick and you know, the Mahabharata is like many volumes. And if they made a movie, it would be 72 hours long. They actually did make a movie. It was 72 hours long. Uh, but, and there's a, there's a joke, you know, it's like, if, if, if it exists, there's porn of it, right? There's a joke. If it isn't in the Mahabharata, it's not anywhere else. <laughs> it's a really big story. Um, but this is an abbreviation, and it's really great. This abridged copy, Krishna Dharma. You can read it just like a thriller. Or if you like Game of Thrones and Songs of Fire and Ice and all that stuff, you can just, like, blow through it, and it's great. Um, so that's a good one. The Tulsidas Ramayana is the classic. So this is the best Ramayana, uh, India's favorite, most beloved Ramayana by Tulsidas. Um, I quite like... Oh, I'm forgetting his name. I've forgotten his name. But anyway, that's, that's the most favorite Ramayana of India. So these are what I would recommend. Um, Nick, I would be careful with some of the more... Um, I don't know how to say, but the Gita as it is... I don't know how to say. I don't want to say it, lest I offend anybody. But I would be very careful of commentaries by ugh, it's gonna sound awful, but like cultists, you know. Like for some some for some people, Krishna actually existed. Or for some people, for that matter, even Jesus actually existed, you know. But a more mature understanding is that, and we call it the docetic Jesus. This might be something worth studying but the docetic jesus is a very popular theory because you know paul never saw jesus paul was writing like 40 years after Jesus' death he saw him as a vision john is writing 150 years after Jesus' death all these people are writing way after jesus um and so there's this idea that jesus you know he might have been a being but a docetic or you know the same way in star wars when ben kenobi reappears as a force apparition might be like that um You know, there's a beautiful story, Teresa of Avila. She always used to call herself Teresa of Jesus. That was her devotion. One day she was in trance and she had a vision of this man in a long white robe and a beard. Obviously, Jesus appeared. And uh, he asked her, Who are you? And she said, I am Teresa of Jesus. Who are you? And he says, I am Jesus of Teresa. So beautiful. But the idea here is like, Okay, you can debate, maybe Jesus was Mediterranean, maybe he was brown, sure, whatever. But that doesn't change that mystics all around Europe are envisioning a white Jesus, you know? Like, you will see the apparition of the divine that is most attenuated to your own idiosyncrasies, you know? So if a Hindu meditates and has trance, they'll see Shiva, maybe. You know, if a Muslim does, they will see the prophet or whatever, whatever it is. So that being said, and Jesus was a yogi, yes. That being said, I'm a little worried about the Gitas that are like so literal, the same way I'm worried about Bible thumpers that are very literal, you know. Um, And another thing is, I think you should have the Sanskrit next to the... um, english as closely as possible so the best gitas are the ones that give you the sanskrit give you the english english uh, what do you call it when you take the Sanskrit and, uh make it in roman roman alphabets like anglicized? what's that transliteration yes yeah like that so you get the sanskrit words but they're all in 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 you know, phonetic you can read it that and then the english verse and then the commentary I'm very afraid of Gitas that are just commentary or just the English word, you know? Yeah. Sorry, I have a question. Yes. When um, So when reading the Bhagavad Gita then with one of these like commentaries, is the commentary itself a translation or should I also have like the Schweig translation or should I read that first or something? Is there like a, a way that you're supposed
2: to approach the commentaries kind of?
0: Mm, that's interesting. A lot of great commentaries are written in English. So Yogananda's commentary is entirely in English. There are good ones in Hindi and good ones in Tamil. Um, and those, for the most part, have been translated. Like the Tulsidas Ramayana is written in Hindi, I think, and it's been translated. There are great Marathi translations. But I think as long as you, you know, the ones that I suggested are all listed in English, like Chinmayanda, Firstine, all of those are English. So you won't really need a translation of the commentary. But the Gita itself, I recommend having just the Gita without the commentary. So get Graham M. Schweig's version, because Schweig gives you just the Gita. It's got an intro, and he talks a little bit about what the Gita is to him in the intro, but it's just the Gita. So you read through it, and then you get the whole song, you know, and then you get a commentary like Chinmayanda's, and now you can go through it, you know, verse by verse and hear the commentary. I think it's really important, though, to at least have read three, two or three, three different commentaries, because it's very easy to and, and it's it's so mysterious, you know, the Gita as to what exactly um, they mean, because the verses are very brief. There's a lot of debate, actually. There's an instruction on how to meditate. In the Gita, it says, find a soft seat of kusha grass, elevated, put a deer skin on it, go and sit, and concentrate your gaze at the point in at the tip of your nose, right? So, this is weird, because you're sitting there, like, looking down. It makes you sleepy, and you get cross-eyed and all that. And in some versions of that Sanskrit, it's the tip of this, the bridge of the nose, which seems to make more sense. So, even that has a lot of debate, you know? So it's like that. Thank you, Lily. It was so good to see you here. It's been a while since I've seen you. Welcome back.
2: Thank you. I really liked this, this discussion. It was actually very an apparent theme in my life this past few weeks, just because my um, like the way that I'm acquiring money is like not aligned with my dharma. And I know that. So it's just like, but profiting off of my dharma feels wrong too. So it's just like, how do you balance between, how do you balance between that?
0: Yeah. No, you know, that sounds, it's a very common, it's actually problems with money can be dealt by root chakra oriented practices.
2: Mm. If you
0: practice your Hatha yoga every day and you apply your Mullah and all that stuff, your Mm. root chakra becomes healthier. You change your notions about money and capitalism. Because there are certain complexes, right, about what money is and money seems to corrupt, and it's like dirty and you're almost like guilty for getting it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're all brought up to believe that we can only earn money through some act of self-sacrifice. Like we have to hate our job to get money, you know. But in time, you will start to get out of the giver-receiver dynamic. You know, so friends, I used to be very shy when people would pay me for yoga Cause what I love to do. Um, but now it no longer feels like I'm receiving and you're giving, you know? Mm-hmm. So if you gave me a million dollars right now, and if you gave me nothing, it would feel the same. Uh, it's starting to feel the same, I can say, with some acceptance. Only because I'm starting to see it as like, when the right hand gives to the left hand, does the left hand thank the right? You know? It's just like... It could. Yeah, it could. It could be like, thank you, man. You're very welcome. But it's just weird. It's like if I sat there with my hands talking sock puppets all day, that would be a little odd. But it's the same thing. Okay. Yeah, your transactions are not transactions insofar as there is no duality between you, the giver, and the receiver.
2: Okay. Okay. Ooh.
0: And think of it this way: What if you took yourself out of the equation? So you showed up and you taught, or you did what you loved. And what is that, Lily? I teach yoga. Okay, cool. And what are you doing that you don't like?
2: Um, <laughs> oh, so I started working in a strip club, <laughs> like a few days a week. And yeah, it's like the financial security from that job. Like I felt like it was healing in a way. Mm-hmm. Like to the root chakra imbalances, so it's like, I don't know, it's so nuanced. It's not black and white at all.
0: I know, and a lot of it is pre-verbal, so you can't really like talk it out or figure it out intellectually. Yeah, it's like it's here, an
2: energetic thing. Yeah, so yeah, okay. figuring that out.
0: <laughs> yeah, if if you can see yourself as not the yoga teacher though, as like just when you teach you're just showing up and doing something in the name of yoga and the yoga is teaching itself and you're just, you know, there yeah. facilitating it. And then when they give you the money, they're not giving you the money at all. They're giving yoga the money and then you mm-hmm. take that money and then you would go buy your manduka mats and you, you know, pay your rent, but it's just yoga like taking care of its own, but you're not involved in any of that. You're just employed yeah. by yoga. <laughs> <You know?
2: laughs> I guess there is like, There's a certain amount of ego involved with it too, because like if people like would come to my classes and like not pay at all repeatedly, like it would sort of feel like an imbalanced energy exchange. Like it would like I was being taken advantage of.
0: Right, right. Yes, I am the last person in the world who can talk to you about boundaries. I know nothing of it. (laughs) all right
2: well thank you so much for this discussion it was really good
0: you're very welcome lily very welcome thank you for sharing
2: yeah see y'all bye oh
0: so sweet nish i just finished reading um ram
2: das's be here now after you recommended it and it was absolutely phenomenal so i wanted to thank you for that
0: you're so welcome. I love Ram Das. Oh, now he's a person who really says, I'm not involved. It's just Maharaji coming through, right? You know, the funny thing about Ram Das, he, he used to teach psychology. He used to lecture, give psychology lectures. So I think I was listening to one of his talks where he said he went to give a psychology lecture, like actually was supposed to teach psychology. But when he got there, he forgot his speech. So instead, he just riffed. And what came out was self-helpy stuff, you know, just like yoga stuff. And it was like a dream, like he felt he was in trance, etc. And then from that point on, he would just have these talks where Ram Dass would leave the room and Maharaji would come through and everybody would feel it, you know. He's a real big inspiration of mine because that fellow could just sit. You know, one of his first talks at Wesleyan, he came. He sat at 7 p.m. at night. It finished at like like 6 a.m. the next morning. You know? And he just sat there talking yoga with people till six AM. It was beautiful.
1: <laughs> that really is beautiful.
0: Well, I like, be out. Love Try that. Be loved. now. I'm sorry. Be loved now? Yeah, Rob Dawson. It's kinda of like the sequel to Be Here Now. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. He also has that other book I was I was I was about to order, the Journey to Spiritual Awakening. Is that what Yo, yeah, that's oh, highly recommend. It's a good meditator's handbook.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much.
0: You are so welcome, brother. It's good to see you, Nick. Oh, guys. So fun. Do you like my new harmonium?
1: Heck yeah, dude. It's cool. I want you to, like... I want to really learn the chants. Like, I want to get deep into it.
0: Dude, yeah. When you come... Maybe tomorrow, when you come by, um, let's just do a little kirtan.
1: Okay, heck yeah. Okay. Um... I'll probably be a little bit later. I probably won't be there until, like, 7, maybe.
0: Of course, of course. Okay. Cool. Bye, Cal. Bye, Cal. Bye-bye. Take care. And, Grace, thank you so much for coming over yesterday, man. It was really, really nice to have Thank you for another great episode. To join in on the discussion, you can find us at Stay Home Yoga every Monday night at 7 p.m. PST and also every Thursday night at 7.30 p.m. PST with Yoga World Heart. We look forward to hanging out together in the heart space. Have a beautiful rest of your day. Namaste.